I'm Aaron Meyer with co-host The Chucker. This is the 19.9 Podcast. On today's episode, we have Jerry Tipton. He's been Kentucky basketball's beat writer for 41 years and takes us behind the scenes like few people can. I don't know if you remember Street Smith, preseason magazine. Jim O'Brien, I believe, was the name of the editor. And Smith had Kentucky rated number two in the country in the preseason poll. So I thought, oh, okay, I'll get a note out of that. What kind of reaction have you gotten from Kentucky fans? He said, oh, they're really mad. They're really upset. And I said, really? Why? He says, because... We rated Kentucky so low. We also get Jerry to settle the debate on who's the best Kentucky team of all time. The thing about 96 was, I don't want to say the wrong words here, but it was kind of boring because they were so much better, a lot of the games were over at halftime. It's time to start the show. Welcome to the 19.9 Podcast. I'm the Chucker, 19.9's resident historian. And today, my co-host, Aaron Meyer, and I are going on press row with Jerry Tipton. Now, we've talked Kentucky hoops here before on the 19.9 Podcast with the likes of author Doug Brunk, as well as former Wildcat Aminu Timberlake. But we've never, ever, ever talked about the Blue Blood program with anybody quite like Jerry Tipton. Tipton is now in his 40th year covering University of Kentucky men's basketball for the Lexington Herald-Leader. From Bowie to the Unforgettables to the Brow and Boogie, from Eddie to Patino to Tubby to Calipari and everyone in between, Tipton has been there for it all over the last four decades. We're going to talk with the esteemed journalist about his 40-year run covering University of Kentucky basketball, the highs and the lows of a program that has seen its all since Tipton began covering it in 1981. In fact, a former editor once said of Tipton that if there was ever to be a Pulitzer Prize for sustained beat writing under miserable <laughs> conditions, Tipton should earn the inaugural award. So we're thrilled to welcome Jerry Tipton, a member of the U.S. Basketball Writers Association Hall of Fame, to the 19.9 podcast. Jerry, thanks for carving out some time for us here today. My pleasure. Happy to be happy to do it. Jerry, whenever you walk into the arena, you need to have uh, the Chucker introduce you uh, like that. I, I want an intro like that when I go into – I'm a school principal, so when I come in in the morning, I just need that rolling on the PA for something, something that the Chucker carves up. I love that. Thanks. I do try well, to do my best. Good. So Yeah, this is uh, my 41st season. Oh, yes. Yeah, uh -oh. He's editing. And I, I don't think about that, and I'm a little embarrassed by it. I just think about the last one or two stories mm. – and the next one or two stories. That's kind of the time frame that I work under. So, you know, 41 seasons. So, Jerry, I read you're a Detroit kid. You attended Marshall University. You wind your way to Lexington, working for the newspaper there. Um, there is, let's call it, intense fandom for Kentucky basketball. <laughs> so, of Big Blue Nation, you've said anything short of reverence is ridicule. So I want to get this sense, when you kind of go down to Lexington, what were your initial impressions of the program and Big Blue Nation and, and what it was all about? Well, it was a learning process. I mean, I was uh, uh, 
I've been to Lexington once, but I don't even know if that counts. And I had, I'd covered Marshall for two years, Marshall basketball for the Huntington paper. And so I was in my naivete thought, well, it's, it's like covering Marshall. <laughs> so, uh, uh, we traveled with the team. They went on bus to all the games. Of course, Kentucky's different. They flew to a lot of the games and, uh, it was a complete learning experience, uh, from the start. And I've heard several coaches have said that you really don't know what you're getting into as the Kentucky coach until you're in the seat. And I think that applies to uh, covering Kentucky. <laughs> applies to the beat journalist as well, huh? Right. So, you know, with you, Jerry, there's a few specific topics I'd like to dive into before asking kind of some more open-ended questions, reflecting on your last 40 years covering the program. So let me begin here. In 1985, you published an article detailing $100 handshakes and, and, and NCAA violations. So I want to give us a sense of our listeners. Tell them how that article was received, because I think this kind of paints a picture for what Big Blue Nation is about in some respects. Well, you, as you can imagine as you chuckled, it wasn't received well. I mean, there, there's kind of a feeling of, uh, the way I think about it is the the games are, are not supposed to be competitions. They're supposed to be demonstrations of mm. Kentucky's superiority. And so anything that could hinder that demonstration is not welcome. Mm. And even though the newspaper and Newspaper thought they were just relating what was really going on. You know what I mean? It was kind of a look behind the scenes. There was no big secret to it. Everybody sort of knew a wink and a nod. But it was just putting it out there and the consequences of an NCAA, possible NCAA probation or whatever, did not make people happy. And uh, at one point, people saw a hole in a window in the newspaper, and it was uh, considered a bullet hole. I don't know if a bullet was ever found. And, uh, you know, there was talk about uh, sending the, you know, boycotting the paper and all of that. And I have a T-shirt in my closet. I never wear it. But it says, uh, if they if we can't send the Herald-Leader to Knoxville, let's send the editor to Baltimore. He was from Baltimore, John Carroll of multiple Pulitzer Prize winning editor. Yeah. And ironically enough, the newspaper now is printed in Knoxville. Really? So there you go. There you go. <laughs> finally, finally got it there. <laughs> right. Well, co- coming out of that, that time period, that kind of low point uh, from the three year probation, 1989, what did you foresee? Cause I think these are such interesting points, inflection points for these blue blood programs where to sustain success over the, the length of time that Kentucky has been able to do uh, there's always there's always these ebbs and flows, but somehow they make it through the, those uh, shaky points to come out and, and get to the top of the mountain again. So what, what did you see coming out of that that probationary period? Well, it was, uh, you know, it was a disaster by Kentucky standards. And uh, they had a losing record in Eddie Sutton's last year. And that was the first losing record since, I believe, 1927. And, uh, you know, people were devastated. Uh, Kentucky basketball, it's, it's more than sports. It's kind of a way of life. I think of it as a uh, family heirloom, precious family heirloom that's passed from generation to generation. And I like to tell the story about, I don't know if you remember Street and Smith, 
preseason yeah. magazine. Jim O'Brien, I believe, was the name of the editor. And he uh, and I do a basketball notes column each Sunday. Nice. And anyway, so they had Street and Smith had Kentucky rated number two in the country in the preseason poll. So I thought, oh, OK, I'll get a note out of that. So I called him and asked him, uh, you know, what you know, why is Kentucky number two? And he said, oh, yeah, we like their guards. We like their big guys, blah, blah, blah. And so I'm thinking, OK, uh, what kind of reaction have you gotten from Kentucky fans? And he said, oh, they're really mad. They're really upset. And I said, really? Why? He says, because we rated Kentucky so low, number two. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so that gives you an idea of what the standard is. And so within probation and everything was devastating. And it just made that following season, 89-90, Rick Pitino's first season, so amazing because it was uh, it was quite a transformation. It didn't last because they went back to how could you rank us so low, number two, <laughs> in short order. But for that first season or two, it was much more of a fun, enjoyable experience for the fans instead of we have to assert dominance at all times. And, you know, Jerry, you mentioned Coach Patino there. So he arrives in 1989. Um, and it, it doesn't take long for that transformation to happen um, and under his watch. And so they have an Elite Eight run in 1992 behind Jamal Mashburn and the Unforgettables. And there's a very famous loss to Duke in what some people call the greatest game ever played. You know, you had a great seat for that. So I want you to take us back to the spectrum in Philadelphia that day. I think for some college basketball fans of, of you know, that's that's one of those moments where they, I remember where I was when, and <laughs> it's Christian Leitner hit the shot. So for you, take us back there. You were in the house that day, nearly 30 years later. What memories of that day, of that game, of that event stick with you here today? Well, I like to tell people that uh, every covering Kentucky is uh, – you know, I feel fortunate to be doing that. And every once in a while, you feel like you're witnessing history. Mm. And that was one of those occasions. And, uh, of course, you know, it was one of those things where I, I would relive it again and again and uh, chastise myself because I, I'm constantly, like, reviewing and did the story. The story could have been better. You know, I wish I had mentioned this or that. And one of the things was this was like the culmination of a three-year rebuilding period. And I don't think I made enough of that in the story, the heartbreak involved. And, uh, of course, one of the things I remember clearly, and I was glad I noticed it, was a Kentucky, they score with 2.1 seconds left. And then after a timeout, I believe, uh, Duke inbounds, and Kentucky did not guard the inbounder, Grant Hill. And that became, <laughs> yeah. for years, a second an avenue or an opportunity to second guess the coach. And of course, they throw long. Leitner makes the shot, and I was overwhelmed emotionally. Just, I hate to use the word magnificence because Kentucky fans wouldn't see it that way. <laughs> but that's the way it was. It was like almost awe-inspiring the drama yeah. and how it ended. And that was, by the way, that was, I don't know if you guys are familiar with Haywood Ledford. He was the Kentucky radio play-by-play -play guy, a very iconic, mm -hmm. living, breathing personification of the program. He did it for 39 years. Wow. That was his last game. Wow. He, he retired. 
And that's one of the things I remember. That's way up there because Mike Shashevsky came over to Kaywood when the game ended and said something on the on the broadcast mm-hmm. about just saluting Kentucky and how they played. But the thing I remember is Kaywood, who should be in every broadcasting Hall of Fame there is, mm-hmm. he ended his broadcast by quoting John Greenleaf, Greenleaf Whittier, who said that uh, the for all the sad words of tongue and pen, the saddest are these. It might have been. Oh. <laughs> and uh, I just thought, yeah. that, you know, if I could pick a way to end my career, I would want to end it w- with a poetic notion. Jerry, I want to stick on that for just a moment. Um, that game, you know, you talk about the real dark days um, for Kentucky before that. And the unforgettables, those seniors who stuck with the program, not knowing that we're not going to an NCAA tournament. We're not going to have the experience we thought we would have. And then in their senior year, Pelfrey, Woods, um, uh, they get the uh, – they get, and I'm leaving some out. I know Richie Fire. So, but, you know, those guys, they get there. They get the chance to do it. You had seen – you know, it's hard, I think, as a journalist to – you know, we have to park our, our fandom at the door. and But you would cover those kids, and you had experience – you had conversations with them. How did you feel for those four young men, uh, the unforgettables as they are in – that their careers ended in that way. Well, it was heartbreaking for them, no doubt about it, and for for the state of Kentucky. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I second one of my other second guesses is uh, I was just, like I say, blown away. So I just went to the uh, post-game press conferences, the coaches' formal press conference. I wish I'd gone to the locker room because I think that's where the, we had somebody else go there, so we had it covered. But I wish I had gone there. Looking back on it, I wasn't smart enough then. I would now. But uh, that's where I think that a raw emotion showed itself. And, uh, you know, it was such a great game. And Duke was number one. And they were, you know, the defending national champion. It was set up to be one of the great moments in Kentucky basketball history, which obviously has had a lot. And it became, I would say, the most heartbreaking moment, certainly in my time. Yeah. And you, every once in a while, I still see people wearing a, a T-shirt with the words, I still hate Leitner. <laughs> so, you know, it resonates. We talked we talk to Aminu Timberlake. We, have, we had a picture of him with that shirt on, he, and he <laughs> couldn't figure out why people <laughs> wanted, to, wanted to come up and take a picture with him. Uh, but uh, everybody wanted a picture of him with that, uh, that shirt on. Yeah, I always kind of feel like Kentucky fans feel like if you beat them, you should have a little remorse <laughs> that you did it. But with Leitner, <laughs> uh, no, rem- no, no remorse, no he love lost. Much there. too happy about it. <laughs> it's you know before Kentucky got that 2012 uh, national title, uh, you referred to the '96 Wildcats as the the greatest UK team you ever covered. So I, I got to get you on on the record here uh, between those two because I think you know for me as a kind of a just uh, college basketball fan those two would be up there in all-time college basketball teams but it would be a fun debate uh between kentucky fans which one which one you liked more it's probably a generational thing where yeah, you're yeah, a maybe. certain age yeah 96 younger 2000 it'd be a great game to cover certainly a lot of great players on both sides the thing about 96 was i don't want to say the wrong words here but it was kind of boring because they were so much better, a lot of the games were over at halftime. 
Yeah. And I sort of like, you know, it's much easier to write about drama than it is dominance. And, uh, you know, that's the way they were. There were a couple of games where, you know, they weren't dominant every game, but uh, they were just so good. And uh, the the 2012 team was too, no doubt. It would be hard to pick, really. I I felt like the 96, I'm a little bit older, so I think that 96 squad for me is just – you know, because of the depth is just, was just so incredible. Like they just kept coming at you. Um, and then, and then I love that pressing style. I mean, that's a little falling out of fashion a little bit now, but it was so much fun to just watch how relentless that was when you had a full team, when you're bringing, you know, guys off the bench who are starters on any other team and they're bought in, in that way to play that intense style. That's funny. You mentioned the style because that played a big part in uh, Rick Pitino just transforming Kentucky that first year. The fans had been grumbling about Eddie Sutton's style. <laughs> and, uh, of course, they're always grumbling about something. By the way. <laughs> yeah. But uh, then they come in, and they're pressing full court, and they're shooting threes. The fans love the threes. There's constant action. And it, it had people on the edge of their seats. And even though they were just 14 and 14 that first season, mm-hmm. people were thrilled that you know they were so entertaining. And at least for that one or in the second season to a lesser degree, just being entertained was enough. <laughs> and that was kind of fun. It was a nice contrast. I, you said Eddie Sutton again. I don't know who it was that told us, but someone's, someone told us that uh, he knew he wouldn't be in at Kentucky uh, for very long because he didn't get as many season tickets to hand out as some of the other coaches. <laughs> well, I don't know I if think... you ever heard that story before, but no. I, I, got a, I got a kick out of that. That sounds like something uh, where a coach is trying to be humorous. <laughs> there, well, there was a question about Joe B. Hall in his final years and yeah. about whether he uh, bartered tickets for profit. But when Eddie Sutton came along, no, I mean, it was more the losing. It was yeah. more the uh, NCAA probation. The thing fell apart. Really. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it was just, it wasn't much fun. Yeah, coach looking for cover, right? Right. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I was just trying to be fun again. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, Jerry, I want to stick on the topic of coaches. You mentioned Joe B. Hall, Coach Cal. We've talked about Patino. Um, You got Tubby Smith in there, too. You got a short Billy Gillespie run. These are some big personalities, some big storylines. I'm curious, you know, over that, you know, 40, four-decade-long career you've had, um, of those coaches, who did you find kind of the most interesting or compelling to cover? Um, understanding, of course, you still got to cover Coach Cal. So, <laughs> so who did you find kind of compelling and interesting? Well, the interesting thing to me is is that uh, covering it forty one seasons now, the coaching changes are it, it becomes a new beat with the coach. When the when there's a coaching change, it's a refreshing thing. Mm-hmm. And I've always felt like that uh, if the reporter is doing his or her job and the coach is doing his or her job, there's going to be moments of friction. And uh, it's just the way it is. And so I always tried to find something about the coach that I like or admire so that when those moments of friction come, I have that as kind of a foundation. I'm not like thinking, boy, that guy's what a, what a jerk, that sort of thing. <laughs> And with uh, Joe B, he was from Kentucky, and it was kind of charming that he revered the program in the same way that the fans. He had been a fan like that. 
and Eddie Sutton was, he had a charm about him and he was, he'd been a successful coach at Arkansas. And then Rick Patino, just that transformation. And he, he radiated an intelligence <laughs> that uh, was appealing. Uh, I, my, my favorite story uh, about Tubby Smith, he came from Georgia. He was the Georgia coach. And Georgia hired his number one assistant to replace him, Ron Jerza. Mm. So, and this was either the first or second year at Kentucky, and Georgia fans were already unhappy with Jerza. And so Kentucky goes down there to play and the game goes into overtime. Great game. And Georgia decides to change defenses going into overtime. Kentucky seizes on that, pulls away and wins. So in the postgame press conference and Tubby Smith is, he's sensitive about his guy as the coach and being under fire. Well, as a reporter for the Georgia student paper, he's nervous. And he asked Tubby something to the effect of boy, Jerza really screwed up, didn't he, when he changed defenses? Well, Tubby doesn't like hearing this. And he snaps at the student reporter and said something like, what team have you ever coached? And so then we go to the next question, and he's answering it, Tubby Smith's answering it. But you can tell he's distracted. You can tell something's on his mind. And at the end of his, his his response, he turns back to the student reporter and apologizes and says he didn't answer his question properly. Ask it again. And I was very impressed by that, especially, especially from a coach. Wow. <laughs> from an autocratic coach. Which That's pretty impressive. Was. Yes. Better than Coach really, K did with the student uh, newspaper reporter. <laughs> I, You know, I was impressed by that. And, uh, you know, it's not hard to find something about each of the coaches mm. that you like and you can kind of fall back on when – moments of friction happen. I got to get your perspective on uh, Coach Calipari. He had this embrace the one and done era, I think, in a way that no other coach did and kind of defi- started to define the era. Uh, but when you started, guys were staying four years and it, and it started to pare down to three, two. And then, you know, it came to that one and one, uh, one and done. So how did that change the dynamic and, and how did it change how you covered uh basketball too because just to, to develop the stories you don't have the 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 guys that uh, the unforgettables like uh, the chucker was talking about if they're only there a year right well it's a different way of going about it it's you know an evolving process sort of like the internet is <laughs> you know revolutionized and now you know the one and done the transfer portal yeah. it's almost more like a pickup game almost <laughs> you know where each season i think it's going to be that way yeah where they're going to have you, it's going to be a new team. And we're sort of used to that to some degree Mm -hmm. at Kentucky. I I still hear fans. uh, They lament that it's not the way it was. They much prefer the uh, getting to know the players and bonding with them. And they think the fans now, you know, Kentucky can be perceived as more of a way station to the NBA. That's kind of the selling point. They, they hardly ever miss a chance to, link Kentucky to the NBA. Mm-hmm. And for the fans, they see Kentucky as a destination, you know, something that uh, you're privileged to, to play for Kentucky. And, you know, it's just not, <laughs> it doesn't translate that way. So, it, so it's an adjustment. I'm like, I tell the fans, I'm like you, especially early in a season, I'm get, trying to get to know the players too, yeah. by sight. I mean, 
and learn their games. I don't cover recruiting and uh, just try to get a sense of them. And it's, you know, it is, it's just part of the process and you deal with it. Jerry, we've talked a lot here about Kentucky basketball, and I just want to pause the talk of the Wildcats for just a moment and ask you about something else you covered in Lexington, and that's the 1985 national title game in which Villanova upset Georgetown. I confess the Chucker, an immense fascination with that game. Um, The Villanova, the Georgetown, the storylines, the Big East rivals, Georgetown being the dominant force. Um, No shot clock. (laughs) You know, all these, the, the, the game, the gamesmanship in it. What memories of that experience in that game stick with you here today? Well, there's two things. And uh, I may be, I hope I don't sound like I'm bragging on myself, but I liked my lead to the story. I was moved back then when I was younger. I wanted to be inspired by what I saw. Now, as I've gotten older, I, I do more prep. <laughs> just in case. I don't want to be sitting there and like, oh, no. And plus, I have to rush, rush, rush now. But anyway, uh, my lead was Villanova plays this great game. They were sort of a Cinderella. And Absolutely. Georgetown was big and bad and all that intimidating. My lead was snowball one, hell nothing. <laughs> and uh, uh, and I like that if nobody yep. else did. And the other thing I remember, and I think this was at the Final Four, uh, back then, uh, you, you could you could get right up there with the coach in the pregame and the day before interview stuff. And uh, John Thompson was an intimidating presence, as we know. And I remember I was I grew up a Celtic fan, even though I grew up in Detroit. Hmm. And I knew he played for the Celtics. And somehow I mentioned Red Auerbach to him, and his whole facial, his everything sort of softened, and this nice warm smile. And that made me, you know, I liked Arabag. I really liked Arabag. And that made me feel good. I got the sense that his time with Boston really meant something to him. Yeah. He loved, he loved his time in Boston from the, his autobiography. He talks really fondly of, of, of I need uh, to read his that. time there. Yeah, it's, a, it's an excellent book. So as a journalist, you know, you're, you're supposed to park that fandom, especially as the, the beat writer. You, you got to just cover, cover it without having a fan. But is there a player uh, from your time that you enjoyed covering? Maybe you're not, you're not rooting for them in that sort of fandom way, but just the, the, the personality stood out or, or you just enjoyed covering their time at, at Kentucky? Yes, of course. And, and I do keep the rooting to the side growing up in uh, Detroit. I was in Big Ten country, and uh, it took me, you know, uh, Kentucky, you know, I, I grew to appreciate what Kentucky sure. basketball is, but I don't have that, uh, you know, that tie-in over generations. Uh, you know, I leave the winning to the coaches and the players, and I just look for, I root for a good story idea. But anyway, uh, one the guy that immediately comes to mind is Tyler Ulis. He was so good. His assisted turnover ratio was like four to one. But uh, and he had that David and Goliath thing yeah. going, the little guy. And I, I, I find that hard to resist. And the the one thing I remember, the first thing I remember about him was they played in the Bahamas, a series of exhibition games before his freshman year. So he had not played a college game yet. <clears throat> and I noticed right away that he was the smartest player on the court. And they'd throw the outlet pass to him, and he would be throwing touch passes up ahead 
to teammates running the break. And I was just like, I was blown away by this. And I just found his game. He was, as you guys know, very competitive. And other teams would try to post him up, and he wasn't having it. You know what I mean? He was going to compete for that place in the low post. They weren't going to just post him. And I liked him. Another guy is, uh, and this is more on a personal level, Eric Daniels. He okay. he played center, undersized. He may have been 6'7", maybe 6'8". And, but he was very crafty and uh, like Tyler Eulis, except as a big. And I remember he used arm fakes. He would use an arm fake and, you know, yeah. And players would, the opponents would fall for it. And I thought that was kind of charming Yeah, <laughs> that he could do that. Very YMCA of him. Yes. Yeah. He was Somewhere Eric Daniels is dominating the rec league. He still lives in our area and uh, nice guys. Nice yeah, guy. That's great. And a fun guy to watch play. You know, I think I, Eric. Yeah, I loved you. I loved, I can't like you, Liz, as a Kentucky player since I'm an IU fan, but I loved what he made it to the NBA and had kind of a cup of coffee there and just was fun to root with. One of those guys that, man, if he had been just a little bit taller, would would have been a fantastic NBA player too, but lightning quick and, uh, just, like you said, team player, which is uh, always always helps uh, helps make the game more exciting. Well, John Calipari, he's had a string of very good point guards. No doubt. Yeah, but Euless, if you compare the numbers, Euless is just – he's way ahead of the hmm. rest of them, you know, an assist to turnover – and I would say, I mean, they were all very good. It's yeah. not that. But he was just, to me, a cut above. Yeah. I think Aaron asked a great question there about a player you rooted for. And and I want to take it in a, just kind of tap into that memory bank a little bit on something else. And, you know, we talked about the 1992 game against Duke in the NCAA tournament, you know, the shot. Uh, or the stomp, depending on <laughs> what side of the spectrum you're on. But right. let's put that game aside. And I'm curious about, for you, what's the most memorable Kentucky game you've covered over the last four decades? Well, if you're asking me to pick one game, I would pick uh, they played Louisville in the 1983 NCAA tournament in Knoxville, of all places. And uh, Louisville had been lobbying for a regular season series. You know, they had won national championships by then. They were, or at least won, 1980, I believe. So they, you know, they felt like they were, if not on par with Kentucky, they, it would be an entertaining game. Well, Kentucky was having none of it. And uh, they were, uh, you know, they, they, you know, they had, they, I think they saw it as they had nothing to gain from it. Louisville would take another step forwards towards parity, which was, you know, a gross insult by, by for Kentucky standards. And, uh, so they, uh, they were supposed to play in 82 in the tournament, except Kentucky lost to Middle Tennessee in the game before. The winner was going to play Louisville. Louisville had a bye, which was another insult, by the way. <laughs> so 83 comes along. They get paired. They're going to, if they both advance, which they did, they're going to play in the region finals. Final four on the line. And it was, a you know, just to see the two teams on the court warming up. And they hadn't played since 1959 NCAA tournament. So just to see, it was like the seeing the Israelis and the Palestinians on the same court. It's like, what? Is this even allowed? Yeah. And so they, they play. The game goes into overtime, super game. And, uh, yeah, that, that one comes to mind immediately. 
and it led to them starting a regular season series. The game was so good that the talk was the state legislature was going to pass a law mandating <laughs> the series unless the Kentucky agreed to it. So they did. I can get on board with that law. Yeah. <laughs> Connects the blues and the reds together. But there's Literally. all sorts of games. There's been all sorts, you know, not all sorts, but there's been a lot of games. Another one is the Mardi Gras miracle in L- at LSU oh, yeah. in 95, I believe. Kentucky was down 31 in the second half. And Patino had given up because he was very animated as a coach on the sideline. But he was just sitting there with his legs crossed, arms crossed, you almost pouting. And they start this comeback. And at the, the sports media at the time covering Kentucky, they had this gesture. We had this gesture where you would slap your palm down on the table to indicate close the book, the game's over. And so everybody else covering Kentucky had put their palms down and they were looking at me and I said, no, I wasn't going to do it because oh, of wow. the three pointer, not yeah, because yeah. I'm so smart, but if you hit <laughs> three or four threes quickly, which Patino teams could do, yep. the whole tenor of the game could change dramatically. Well, that's what happened. And they come back and win. Crazy. So I think it's still the biggest comeback victory, second half comeback victory in NCAA tournament, uh, NCAA basketball history. Wow. I think. Still remember watching nice. the game myself. Yeah. <laughs> the Mardi Gras miracle. It's a great game. Um, you know, you brought up something I wanted to, to hit on. You talked about the. I want to get into this relationship between Louisville and Kentucky. And what was it like when you started? Which seems like it was very contentious. And like, hey, UK's up here, Louisville, you're down here. How has that evolved over the years, or is it uh, still the same? Well, I think there's sort of no. It's not the same. I mean, there's sort of. Uh, I guess how do you describe to outsiders the relationship between those two blue, you know, those two very well respected programs? Yeah, well, there's still uh, it's not like it was where Kentucky was not going to even acknowledge <laughs> Louisville. You know, that would have been a, a a great concession to make. They weren't going to do that, but eventually, now they're sort of a you know they're still rivals, and uh, I mean very hot rivals. They would see it as the best rivalry. It's, in college basketball. I don't know. You, we can debate that. But you got to throw in the big city, Louisville, the countryside. That's an element in it. There might be a racial angle. You know, Louisville is a, has a large uh, black population. And, uh, you know, you could that that was part of it back in the day. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I think there's sort of, I don't know if respect <laughs> might be overstating it from Kentucky to Louisville. And Louisville feels like they're being looked down upon the fans. I think Interesting. nobody likes that, of course, <laughs> but they, they can be on the same court. It's not a shocking, you know, we've conditioned ourselves to see that. And, but it's always a game that everybody looks forward to. Speaking yep. of not look, liking to be looked down on, how do we, uh, you got a, you got a line to Calipari. How do we fire up that IU Kentucky rivalry <laughs> again? Cause I, I miss that. I got to admit, I miss that. You know, it's not like IU's been a blue blood lately, but certainly college basketball with all the realignment and uh, things that have happened could use some rivalries again. I think those are just fun for fans, even, even casual fans. And I think with Woodson back in there and, and, you know, his history and, and Calipari just having general history in the NCAA, I would love to see that, that reemerge. Calipari was asked about that. I believe it was after they played Ohio and he, he talked about how much he likes Mike Woodson and they have, he just, he didn't say they talked about the series resuming, 
but he did say they've talked, mm. but he didn't go any further than that. And that uh, that last Kentucky Indiana game was the game where Christian Watford made the last second. Yeah, yeah. That was on my list of memorable games Man. because the fans charged the court, and the student section was right behind the media where we were behind the baseline, and that's the scariest I've ever been, uh, scaredest I've ever been because they were charging, and I was protecting my computer in front of me, kind of bracing myself. And they were pressing up against me. I didn't know if I could hold it, but I did, fortunately. But, you know, that, that was, you know, and, and there was a real hostility from Indiana fans directed at Kentucky, you know. And I don't know if Calipari, I'm sure he didn't like that. Some of it yeah. was directed at him. Yeah. And maybe that contributed also to the end. He got us in the tournament, though, that year. So he can't be that mad. They were for neutral sites. Kentucky said they would continue, but only neutral sites, Louisville yeah. and Indianapolis. And Indiana wanted home and home. Yeah. And so they couldn't agree. It's, the game's not in the same in Indianapolis versus Assembly Hall. Or uh, no. It just isn't. No. Yeah. You know, so Jerry, I know you, you got to go. You're, you've been gracious with your time here. I wanted to ask one last question, and that's you've been in SEC country all these years. And, you know, there's a rich basketball history in the Southeast. When you think about LSU and Pistol Pete, and you think about Dominique at Georgia, and obvi- I mean, obviously Kentucky, um, you know, Florida with recent national titles. And, I mean, there's some great Arkansas, pro- Arkansas of course. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm certainly leaving some out, but I mean, it's, it's football country down there. Let's, let's be honest. <laughs> Has basketball closed that gap at all, or has that has football become even a more powerful force? Because you know, Aaron mentioned conference realignment; that's really driven by football. Um, so, how do you kind of see that dynamic there? Because you know, there's there's a rich history, but there's also been some. You know, SEC I think has become more and more competitive over the years on the national stage. You know, uh, and deeper really. And so, how how do you kind of see that? Well, I think the SEC has made it a priority to elevate basketball, the, the profile nationally. And a, a game that comes to mind, and I don't remember what year, but it was fairly recently, Kentucky played Tennessee in the SEC tournament finals in Nashville. And the, the, the crowd was 50-50. Usually at the SEC tournament, it would be Kentucky, you know, 80, 90%. This time it was kind of 50-50. And every basket, every you know, almost every play, I'm exaggerating a little, drew a roar from one half of the crowd. And it was a fun atmosphere. You know, they may have closed the gap somewhat, but football is football. I mean, let's, let's be honest. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. <laughs> yeah, and that, that uh, you know, nobody nobody is gunning to bring down football. <laughs> yeah, what did you say? Was, snow, you know, basketball's got to be the snowball uh, here if they're going to take anybody down. <laughs> right, yeah, it's that, but uh, I remember back in the late 80s, early 90s, the SEC was good. I don't know if it was appreciated as much, but every team had one or two guys that were Kentucky good yeah. that could play for Kentucky. And I think we're re we're, we're going to return to that at mm. some point. And Arkansas joining made a real difference. I think that's kind of gave the rest of the league someone other than Kentucky yeah. to kind of be a model. And then Florida, what Florida did, and uh, that profile, you know, that national TV. But I think basketball, maybe, I don't know, maybe is more of a thing now than it, it was uh, decades back. And the SEC wants to ride that, too. Yeah. Well, Jerry, you're going to have to get ready for those trips to Austin, Texas, and Norman, Oklahoma soon, too. So, uh, 
So Jerry, we're going to end it there. We want to thank you for sharing your time with the 199 podcast and, and really giving us a rich look at a Kentucky hoops. I said, I know we certainly appreciate it. Well, I appreciate being on guys and uh, send me a, send me a, whatever you put out. I'd like to hear it. All right. Thank you for listening to the 199 podcast. If you haven't already subscribed to the podcast, make sure you do. And while you're at it, leave us a rating or review. Five stars only, like the basketball camp. We also have links to all of 199 social media so you never miss a release. Until next time, 